thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Threats to military forces and their equipment and infrastructure come in a variety of forms. We're all familiar with battle damage, terrorist acts, and even training mishaps, but what about Mother Nature? Can weather be a threat? Well, if the weather system packs the punch of 10 nuclear bombs every 20 minutes, it most certainly can, which is why the Air Force fields a -a one-of-a-kind unit to fly into such devastating storms. They're technically known as the 53rd Weather Reconnaissance Squadron based at Keesler Air Force Base, Mississippi, but they're better known as the Hurricane Hunters, and they join us this week here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. That's a good sign. Hey, go ahead and put it in the can. They do more maneuvering than we do in the storm anyway. That'll be a max wind band. Max wind got it. Just totally appreciate it, yeah. Welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here is your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I am your host, Jello, and that's right. This week, we're talking all about the U.S. Air Force Hurricane Hunters and their WC-130 Hercules. Should be a lot of fun. Now, as you'll learn in the upcoming interview, the Air Force is not the only outfit deliberately flying into the middle of these big storms. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration does so too. And so we need someone who can help us understand both sides of this discussion. And returning to the show to do that is a hero of the Test Pilot School show way back on episode 22, Becky Shaw. Welcome back, Recky. It's been forever. It's great to be back. Your listeners have been really wonderful um, ever since I was on the show. I've taken off as like a C-list celebrity. <laughs> Sometimes I'm at work or I'm, I'm out with some people and they're like, oh, I heard you on the Fighter Pilot podcast. I'm like, wait, you listen to the Fighter Pilot podcast? And they have to kind of like out themselves as like a military aviator who's listening to military aviation, talk about military aviation when they're not at work. So I'm happy to be back on the show. Good. Well, we're glad to have you back. It sounds like you haven't lost your sense of humor, so that's good. But speaking of that, it has been a couple of years since you were here. I think at the time you were a lieutenant in your post-test pilot school tour. What are you up to now? So <laughs> what happened was I'll try to make the long, circuitous story so it kind of come together. April of last year, I was at the end of my test tour. I just selected 04, and I was about to start a disassociated sea tour. I was going to stay in Pax River, actually, and I had orders to be the admiral's aide for the three-star in Pax River that runs Nav Air. Okay. And kind of on that trajectory for the Navy. And I ended up doing a three-week stint flying in Greenland with NASA on Operation Icebridge, Sometimes NASA will have like naval aviators. I don't know if the Air Force or anybody else does it, like augment some of their pilot positions. So I got that opportunity. They usually pull people from test, but some of the other research squadrons too. So I was in Thule flying the P3 with NASA. And one of the other pilots 
was a NOAA pilot who had transferred over from the Navy. And there had been other people who had gone to NOAA in the hurricane hunter position that I had known, but I had thought it was like a government's job or something that you do like in the reserves. I didn't really know what it was. So while we were in Greenland, he had talked a lot about it. And the NOAA course actually one of the now eight uniform services, if you're considering the Space Force adding in that. Mm-hmm. So the more we talked about it, I just got really excited about it. I was, I'm really into the science aspects started to be really attracted to me. And then the missions were really cool. So I actually completed an inner service transfer from the Navy into the NOAA Corps. Oh. They have a board almost like annually. And so I put in all of my application, all of my prior qualifications. I applied to this board. And I was selected for inter-service transfer to fly the WP-3 Hurricane Hunter for NOAA. And this June of 2020, I commissioned into the NOAA Corps in 04. So I got to keep all my rank. Most of the uniforms are the same. The flight suits are blue, which is cool. And then, yeah, now I'm in the NOAA Corps. Outstanding. Well, that is why you're back. So we want to hear all about some of the differences here in a little bit when we talk with the Air Force Hurricane Hunter guys in a little bit. But before we do that, those who listen to the show and you as well, because all the people tell you they listen. So you know (laughs) that we have a couple announcements and some listener questions. And you're our guest co-host today. So you're going to help out with all these. Is that okay? Perfect. It's great. Good. Well, let's see. For announcements, this past week, we released a new blog on our website. We were musing about how good you have to be at math or not to be a fighter pilot. And we just called it fighter pilot, but really military aviator. Now, Recky, you have a technical background. What do you think? I don't know if you had a chance to read it or not, but did I understate the need to be good at math in this business? I read your blog and I didn't know that fighter guys needed to know math. I just figured you guys knew how to turn in circles. Ouch. But no, I thought after checking all of your math. <laughs> of course. I did that a hundred times. Yeah. I read the blog post and it covers a lot of stuff that I think every pilot sees. So even if you know you're one of the fellow the other military aviators that are listening to this back in Pax River, or you're like a new initiation into the pilot community, the blog covers like a lot of the stuff that every aviator kind of goes through and the math that you'll use once you get into the technical side, like aerodynamics or rotary wing flight, like helicopters, things can get pretty weird pretty quick. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. I really liked how you brought up, you pointed out how important rate was. And that reminded me, you might think this is silly. I didn't do a lot of formation flying when I was in the fleet, but I did a lot in test. And so the concept of rate and turning in circles really helped me in the beginning of learning how to do a rejoin, which was probably like decades ago for you. But so the rate concept, when you're like, this is the thing we use the most, I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Cause that is one of the things that like really helped me like kind of figure that out initially. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that because, you know, I get a lot of emails here on this podcast and some of them are from young people who wonder about maybe they struggled with math in school and they ask how good you have to be. And the point of the article is, you know, numbers are everywhere. So if you're adverse to numbers, well, then you're probably going into the wrong business. But as far as math and arithmetic, and you're talking about geometry a little bit there too, with the rejoins, I mean, you have to have some proficiency. So head on over to fighterpilotpodcast.com, click on the musings and you can read it and look for yourself. And I guess we have the endorsement of a TPS graduate. That makes it, I think, (laughs) legit. All right, let's see. What else? This past week, we aired a bonus, a couple bonus episodes, uh, one with our old friend Bus promoting his latest book, 
Top Guns Top 10 Leadership Lessons from the Cockpit. And we had a giveaway for that one. And congratulations to the three winners who will receive an autographed copy. That's Kevin Flynn, Jason Poole, and John Barrett. And Recky, as it stands right now, as you and I record this, I haven't released it, but if everything works out, by the time folks hear this, they should hear another bonus with Sam Kleiner on the Flying Tigers. You might be aware of them. That's the American volunteer group who flew in China against the Japanese. So we've got a little bonus of that coming up as well. Hopefully by the time you're hearing this, you've already heard it. And it's just a really great book. And we always like promoting books on this show because you can learn so much. And then finally, if you caught our listener Q&A intermission session with Boat last week, well, we're happy to report that since then, we have nailed down a few guests. So we do expect to have Bomber Month 2020. And the current plan is to do so in November. Recky, that's it for announcements. I have a couple listener questions. You game for helping out answer those? Absolutely. Challenge accepted. All right. Fantastic. Well, the first is an email from James Pollitt, who asks, back in World War II, during the initial few weeks of the Battle of the Bulge, which my father was in, by the way, there was poor weather. By that, I mean a major nasty snowstorm in the area of operations. And the U.S. Army Air Force couldn't fly close air support missions to support the ground troops. And it wasn't until the weather cleared that the Allies were able to use air power against the Germans in 1945. The question is, if a similar situation happened today, would a modern fighter aircraft like an F-35 be able to fly and conduct close air support missions in a major storm, blizzard, hurricane, or other inclement weather, or would they have to be grounded until the weather cleared? So, James, this is the perfect question for today's episode because we're talking all about weather. Recky, let's start with you and your background community. You hail, as I understand, no pun intended, from the <laughs> VP community. How does extreme weather impact you guys and your mission? We're not starting from the boat, right? We're, we usually have to transit a little bit to get to our on station. I'm sure it's the same, actually, probably the same for you guys. But in the P3, we would use our mission radar as a weather radar, and we would have a radar operator in the tube, if you will, kind of trying to vector us around different storms, but you'll still go. You just have to find a way to sort of get around it. When we were doing low altitude ASW, the anti-submarine warfare, sometimes you have to be a little creative on how to get below certain layers or drop buoys safely, but it really was just a matter of trying to get around it. On the P8, I think people see it's a 737. They think that oh, I, they can just climb over the weather, but that's still pretty unusual. You'd have to get pretty high to do it. So the best thing to do would just try to find a way to go around and make sure that you've got enough fuel to get back. Mm. On the other side of that, uh, with the ocean forecasting, which is kind of, this comes back from like the NOAA side, this applies more to some of the guys on the ground. The meteorological survey and prediction was really huge on the D-Day invasion. And I didn't know that until I joined NOAA, but sometimes people can use weather forecasts to really like help what the military is doing. And there's kind of a role that gets played in, which is why some of the services have so many different like weather shops available to them. So sometimes it can help, right. but we usually go around them. You guys don't have anything in the, do you guys use your weather radar? No, you don't have weather radar in F-18. You use your mission radar the same way or not? In the F-18, we can go into air-to-ground mode and then just roll it up the antenna to look in front of us, and it's a <laughs> poor man's weather radar. It can keep you out of the bulk of it. I can't speak for the F-35 or other aircraft, but that's what we would do. And then you were at the mercy of other people. I do remember delivering a jet from the West Coast to the East in my last tour, and air traffic control said, hey, you got an area of extreme precipitation on the nose 20 miles or something. I said, hey, 
oh, whatever, I'm in an F-18, I'll fly through it. Well, of course, the rain starts beating on the canopy. There's lightning flashes all around me. I'm starting to ice up a little bit, and I got out of there real quick with their help. So, But to the point of James's question, you know, back in World War II, most everything was visual. And close air support, it requires, as the name implies, the close coordination with the ground forces, as we've talked about on previous episodes. These days, we do have the benefit of GPS munitions. And so with the right coordinates, you can still employ those in almost any weather. But we are still at the mercy of the weather phenomena that are out there. And the F-18 flight into known icing conditions is prohibited. Also, so is flight with sustained winds over 25 knots. And and that's not a function of the airplane being able to handle it. It's a function of safety if you have to eject, because when you land, you could be dragged to your death. And in fact, that happened to a friend of mine uh, who was at Top Gun with me. He collided with his wingman over Iraq in 2005, I think it was, or four. As I understood the mishap report, they survived the collision and the ejection. And when they landed, there was something like 35 knots over the desert floor. And and they were unfortunately dragged to their deaths. And so there are wind limits, there are hail, obviously, and thunderstorm limits. And so you can do your best in weather, but yeah, it is a significant mission detractor, as we will learn here in a bit with our feature interview. But uh, it's a really good question, James. And so unfortunately, the weather still a lot of time wins in these situations. All right, next, let's take a phone call. Hey, Vince, Patrick here out of Annapolis, Maryland. From what I understand, air-to-air training consists mostly of simulator and flipping your weapons into some kind of master training mode where you can't loose missiles at each other for obvious reasons. So my question is, in a training environment, do you guys ever get to shoot real AMRAMs or sidewinders at training targets like balloons or drones or something like that? Or are these missiles just too dang expensive to be popping them off outside of combat? And if it is a thing, shooting training targets, that is, how often do you get to do it? Thanks for your time. Love the show and keep up the good work, brother. All right. Good question, Patrick. Yes, you absolutely get to shoot real missiles once in a while. In fact, in Navy F-18 squadrons, it is a requirement of the training and readiness matrix, the TNR matrix. I don't know if that's come up before on the show, but it's just a way where there are certain things you have to do. And so often, if you do them, you get points and then your squadron has a score and it is intended to relay how ready your squadron is. And so every year or so in a VFA, a junior officer will be assigned the task of conducting a missile X, as we call it. And so you have to find out what weapons are available and which ones have been allotted to your squadron. Then you have to look at the TNR matrix and see who needs it based on what they've shot in the past. Then you find the appropriate range and the targets, which could be drones, flares, even air-launched drones. We call them TALD. I've never heard of anyone shooting a balloon. But maybe, I don't know. But at any rate, sometimes you even have like unmanned QF-16s and QF-4s. I think the QF-4s are gone. But the whole reason for this is a couple reasons, actually. One is it's just a great end-to-end testing of everything. So you get the weapon out, you build it, you load it, you test it, you fly it, and you fire it. And if everything works, it's just great confidence for everybody involved all along the way. And then on that last point, for the crew... I mean, you bet your bottom dollar. I remember both times I squeezed the trigger and a missile came off. I got to shoot both an AIM-7 Sparrow and an AIM-9 Sidewinder, and 
Unfortunately, Recky, you can laugh at me if you want, but neither one worked. <laughs> the AIM-7 fired, but it just went down into the ocean and the AIM-9 went off into I don't know where. As soon as I squeezed the trigger, I never saw it again, but it did not go after the flare that I had locked it on. So I'm sure, you know, the poor craftsman always blames his tools. But anyway, <laughs> I did get a chance to fire those. The Air Force actually has a program called Combat Archer. That is the code name for their air-to-air weapons system evaluation program, or WESUP, executed by the 83rd Fighter Weapons Squadron at Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida. And if you Google Combat Archer, Patrick, you can learn all about them because what they do is they'll take real weapons, they'll take the warhead out and put telemetry in, and then they come up with all these cool scenarios to both test the missiles and validate tactics, and they'll go out and they'll shoot drones or QF-16s, and they will see how close it gets and whether it would be considered a kill or not. And so, yes, we do get to shoot weapons. It's pretty cool. I don't know about the VP community. Recky, did you ever get a chance to shoot Harpoons or Maverick or anything cool? We had the same kind of training requirements. On my deployment, my second deployment, the Maverick was the weapon of choice that we carry it the most. So we did one shot on home cycle. I think we took out a flaming barge. (laughs) So it must have been the IR Maverick. It was, oh yeah, we fly with Iron Mavericks. And then in um, a classic P3 story, I think I had to bake cookies to get put on that flight. I think that was <laughs> how I ended up on that. Maybe they were Rice Krispie Treats. We had Mavericks, but most we practiced was actually torpedoes, which you probably would have guessed. So we have uh, exercise torpedoes, which the same thing, they take the warhead out and put um, recorders and we'll go out and sometimes work with, you know, real subs taking on safety precautions, of course. Right. And then also some sleds that will act like submarines so that we can work on our weapon area. And since that's most likely what we would be launching would be the torpedoes. But yeah, we got our one Maverick shot when I was in the fleet. That's cool. Cool. Yeah. I got to shoot an IR Maverick as well. That one did work, I'm happy to say, but (laughs) excellent. Okay. Our last question then for this week is an email from GT Free Flyer who asks, why do they say pickle when dropping a bomb? Surely someone didn't actually drop a pickle out of an airplane at some point in history and yelled the word pickle, but perhaps (laughs) they did. Fox, pickle, magnum, rifle, others. Where did all these words originate and what's the etymology? So, Recky, I had no clue about this. Maybe you did, but I'm part of a crotchety old group of fighter pilots on (laughs) Facebook, and I put it to them, and apparently they all knew, and I didn't, so duh. But they said it had to do with the invention of the Norden bombsite that our guest Crawford Hicks talked about on our B-17 episode. So back in World War II, they alleged that it was so accurate that you could, quote, put a bomb into a pickle barrel from 25,000 feet. Who knew? Do you guys use that term, Recky? Yeah, we do. I thought it was a symbology thing or, but. Well, yeah, one of the guys said that too. They said that like the CCIP reticle like was round with some lumps. And if you cut a pickle and you looked at it crosswise, that maybe it looked like that. But everybody else argued with those guys. Of course, any post on this group turns quickly into politics or you know, bikinis or something. But uh, at any rate, before they got to that point, some of them argued that they had heard about it, the Norden site, and that that was well before CCIP. But yeah, I'd heard that one too. Can you take any guesses, Recky? I'm going to go a little bit yellow light here on the term Magnum, where that came from as far as uh, shooting a harm. No, I've got no (laughs) guesses. You'll just have to tell me because I can't possibly think of what that would be. So apparently the people who started doing this in the uh, Vietnam conflict, they had to get up and 
close and personal with the SAM sites to launch these. And so everybody else thought they were particularly brave. And an expression for brave once in a while is having big certain parts. And so there are prophylactics that the larger versions are called Magnum. And so (laughs) apparently when they launched a harm and they were telling the world, look how big my parts are um, that I need a Magnum size. And so that was Magnum. I better move on quickly am, here. Am I blushing? Are you blushing? I don't know. <laughs> I can't even tell. At any rate, uh, <laughs> rifle is a Maverick. Long rifle is a Slam ER. Uh, you've got Fox, like Fox 1, 2, and 3. I don't know, GT Free Flyer. These are all good terms. I'm sure they all have colorful backgrounds like these, but I learn something new every week on this show. And Thanks for that question, for helping me learn that one. Um, actually, back to you, Recky. What about Slam ER? Don't you guys carry that too or no? Yeah, so they were definitely carrying them a lot when the P3s went overland, like right after okay. 2001. And then we still trained. Like we had to keep up all our calls with some of the CADMs or what are the ones we would captive carry them and practice with them, but... Like a captive CATM was a captive air training missile for either the, you could do it for the harpoon, for the slam ER, yeah. Yeah, we practiced some of them in readiness. After we went back to ASW, like away from a lot of the overland stuff, I don't think that they really see them other than just like okay. having us maintain training with it. Well, and as I understand, the Maverick that you and I both had a chance to shoot with the call term rifle when you shoot it, I guess they adapted long rifle to the Slam ER because it goes quite a bit farther than a Maverick, but it has a Maverick Seeker on the tip. So uh, that could be part of that. Anyway, GT Free Flyer, thanks for the question. Thanks to everyone for your questions. Always enjoy getting them and doing the research to answer them because most of them I don't know. Sorry, you're I'm the host you're stuck with and I don't know it all, but thanks for helping out with that, Recky. Now, before we move on to the interview, you had a chance to listen to it in advance. Any thoughts? Obviously, we'll meet again afterwards to talk about some of it, but any thoughts before we all hear about this? I think they do a really great job of giving you some insight to a part of aviation that a lot of people never see. And they describe the science side and the mission just like really well. I'm just really impressed by, I guess, like how well they communicate, like what they're doing. And I think this is the one that you're going to get a lot of listeners because it is a mission set. Well, it is. And it's a bit out of our normal coverage, I would say. But I mean, it's an Air Force unit. They make a great point for why they do what they do. So without any further ado, let's let Mark and Garrett tell us all about Hurricane Hunters. And then, Recky, you and I will meet on the back and we'll cover a few more things. What do you say? Sounds great. A fully developed hurricane is extremely powerful and destructive. Now, our military has sworn to defend the country against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and maybe that also includes weather phenomena that can be destructive. So we have a force of folks that do that around the world. Two of them are joining us today. We'll start with Mark Withy. He's a major in the United States Air Force Reserve. How's it going, Mark? Doing great. Excellent. And with you is Captain Garrett Black, also Air Force Reserve. How's it going, Garrett? Good. How are you, Jello? 
I'm doing fantastic. I appreciate you guys taking time out of your busy schedule to come talk to us about this because, frankly, this is one of those subjects that the Air Force does, and I don't really understand why or how or when or where. So let's cover the five W's today of hurricane hunting as well as your aircraft, which, as I understand, is the WC-130. But first, if you guys are familiar with the show, you should know that we always start with our guests. So, Mark, back to you. Where are you from? Where'd you go to school? And what have you done in the military so far? I'm from uh, the West Coast, grew up out there, went to Portland State University and always wanted to be a, a pilot. Uh, didn't have the eyes for it and uh, settled for uh, and being a navigator instead. Joined the Air Force after college and went to uh, the normal C-130 world, flew TAC for several years, then ended up at the C-130 schoolhouse, did that for a while, and then made the jump to the reserves. Navigator is not a growth career field. And uh, the Hurricane Hunters was a, a good option. Uh, been doing this for five years. Outstanding. Okay, Garrett, same question to you, please. Yeah, so uh, I'm from Kansas originally, went to uh, the University of Kansas to get my degree in atmospheric sciences. Following my degree, I uh, went through officer training school, uh, commissioned with the Air Force, actually joined the Kansas Air National Guard to start my career. I did uh, Army support weather, supporting uh, the Apaches and Blackhawks up in uh, the Kansas, Missouri areas before finally making the jump down here to the Hurricane Hunters. It's a very unique job for a weather officer. So to get that opportunity was something that uh, I obviously jumped on. And I've been doing this for about five years now. Um, it's a, a very uh, non-standard job for a weather officer to be part of uh, an air crew um, in the aviator world. So it's a good opportunity and I've, I've had a good time doing it so far. Cool. Well, I want to learn about that a little bit, too, because when I think of a weather officer, I think of someone who maybe runs the office at a base where I can come in and get my brief before I go flying. You guys keep an eye on local conditions. I don't know if that's a fair assessment of what you do, but to your point, in this case, you are not just sitting in an office. Your office is moving through the sky, and as we'll learn here in a little bit, in somewhat dangerous conditions. Yeah, absolutely. I think you highlighted it well. Uh, typically, we're working in base ops and uh, briefing the pilots, you know, at Dash One or or whatever form that may be to get them the weather. And uh, now we're actually going out with the pilots into the environment in which you know the forecast is for. So it's definitely a, a unique uh, position for us. Very neat. Well, I want to learn about that. Let's start at the beginning. I mean, at the beginning here, as I introduced you guys, I tried to take a stab at, you know, these things are extremely powerful and very dangerous and destructive. But why have a military aspect to hurricane hunting? Why do you guys exist, let's say? The whole thing started out as the result of a bet, like all great things. <laughs> Colonel Joseph Duckworth in 1943 flew a single-engine AT-6 trainer through the eye of a hurricane near Galveston and proved it could be done. And following that, the military started regular weather reconnaissance for all sorts of purposes. Admiral Bull Halsey, obviously, he lost some ships during World War II with a run-in. Yeah, 1944. Yeah, with a typhoon. And weather, particularly hurricanes or typhoons, have been a, a pretty significant problem for military forces through the years. Now that we have aircraft that can conduct regular weather recon, it became a significant advantage to know what storms were doing for that. And then just for protection of the American populace uh, back home, mm -hmm. there became regular hurricane reconnaissance flights. The Navy had some squadrons, the Air Force had some squadrons. 
those went through the years. Now that satellites have taken over a lot of that has diminished. However, there's still no replacement for direct sensing of the storm environment to gather the data that really allows the forecasters to predict where storms go. And because of that, you guys have to go where the storms go. So as we think about the where part of our five W's, you guys are based, as I understand, in Keesler in Biloxi, Mississippi. Is that correct? That's primarily where we locate out of. Okay. That being said, if there's storms out in the Pacific Ocean that are threatening the Hawaiian Islands or even Mexico in the Pacific, we'll locate out of Hawaii to have kind of a a further reach to be able to access storms that we would not be able to fly from Biloxi. We can stay in the air about 13 hours with our fuel requirements. And so that just gives us a little bit more leverage to be able to base out of different locations. So mm-hmm. if it's further out in the Atlantic Ocean, we'll typically go from St. Croix, the U.S. Virgin Islands. And that gets us substantially further out in the Atlantic Ocean, which is what we're seeing a lot now uh, with waves coming off the coast of Africa. So we're able to kind of jump on those early on to see if they're potentially going to have impacts to uh, not only the United States, but other uh, Caribbean islands as well. Mm-hmm. Our area of responsibility, as you'd kind of typically think about it in the military sense, goes from 54 west out to the Hawaiian Islands. So that's out past the Leeward Islands in the sort of Western Atlantic all the way through. And sometimes people look at where we fly and some of the storms we go through and are kind of curious, like the, the ones that have come off the coast of Mexico. And it's worth keeping in mind that a storm that's hitting Baja, Mexico on one day will the next day be bringing potentially torrential downpours into Arizona, Southern California, New Mexico area. So although some storms don't hit the continental United States or territories, they still have a potentially significant impact on the country. Well, that makes sense. So in that regard, is Hurricane Hunters a fair term for this show or for you guys? I mean, is it only hurricanes? Is it other types of storms? And while we're at it, I want you to, if you can, once and for all, school me on the difference between a hurricane and a typhoon, because even though I've been told it three or four times, I still don't know the difference. Sure. So as far as the Hurricane Hunter question, I think that's primarily what we're known for, just because it's typically the most substantial weather as far as uh, an impact. Mm -hmm. You know, I say that there's also winter storms that go up the East Coast, uh, nor'easters that will fly in the winter months. And those obviously play uh, a great role in um, economic value as far as shutting businesses down, schools down and whatnot up the East Coast. So we'll fly winter storms primarily in the Atlantic Ocean. But also, you know, recently over the last, I'd say, five years or so, we've really been getting into observations over the Pacific Ocean and between Hawaii and, and the West Coast. They're called atmospheric rivers, and what they do is they bring a bunch of moisture from the uh, tropics, and it causes you know a lot of the torrential downfalls and flooding in California, mudslides and whatnot that are often deadly. So that's obviously a very important factor, but it's also a big water budget issue as well for the state of California and other West Coast states as far as being able to properly manage where that water needs to go, how much rain they're expecting over the next week. And so we can provide that data in a, in a data sparse area over, obviously, the Pacific Ocean is very large. So we're able to go out there and sample oh, yeah. and really get a better idea of what's out there and what's going to impact the United States. So I guess the long-winded answer to that question is, is <laughs> we're most known for our hurricanes, hurricane hunting, but we do fly other uh, weather events as well that typically form over the the ocean waters. Okay. 
Now, how do I know the difference between a hurricane, a typhoon, and isn't there also a cyclone? I probably should know this, but... It's purely geographical. So obviously where we're at, it's a hurricane, whether that's between Hawaii and the United States, and then in the Atlantic and Caribbean, uh, we classify it as hurricane. Okay. If it's in the Southern Hemisphere, it's a cyclone spinning the other way, but the dynamics are overall the same. And then a typhoon is in the Western Pacific Ocean. So, you know, Japan, Guam are typically the big hitters, Philippines. Um, those are obviously classified um, as a typhoon or a super typhoon yeah. if it's strong enough. Okay. Well, and on that note, we have military and, of course, civilian infrastructure in those various countries, including our allies, the Japanese themselves. But also, let's say we deploy somewhere. Let's say there's a conflict somewhere where this weather could be a factor. Will you guys forward deploy or are there other assets that can help out? So our area of responsibility is really between 54 West and the Hawaiian Islands. Mm-hmm. There are uh, rare circumstances where we have been involved in stuff outside that area of responsibility, but that's typically where we stick. Okay. There's no other countries currently flying this quite type of, of weather reconnaissance. So really elsewhere in the world, it's on satellites. Gotcha. Now, you threw out different terms that, to me, sound very civil-oriented as far as infrastructure and economy and all these different things. So why the Air Force, and are you the only asset doing this? And I already know the answer to that, but you guys and NOAA are both doing this, and I guess the question would be then, what's the difference? Yeah, sure. So I'd really say that it kind of came as an outgrowth of the military having the aviation capabilities to go do this, and as a part of protecting our defense assets post-World War II, but it obviously it does have a significant impact on that. The 53rd Weather Reconnaissance Squadron is the sole remaining military unit doing weather reconnaissance. And what I would describe our mission as providing persistent weather reconnaissance around the clock to feed computer models at the National Hurricane Center. There is a NOAA Hurricane Hunter mission They do more research and experimental type things and focus on that. We often fly the same storms and sometimes at the same time. However, there is a different focus between the two organizations. Okay. I was not aware of that. Now, that's the who, but let's put a little more who into it, if you will. Who are the people that are doing these missions? So, in other words, is a you guys are, what, a navigator and a weather officer. So, is a C-130 pilot just going to show up and start flying your guys' aircraft? Or is this a special group of folks that have this mission? At least at the, did you say it was the 503rd? 53rd Weather Reconnaissance Squadron. 53rd, excuse me. All right. So, tell us about those people. At the most basic level, it's a C-130J model that has been outfitted with some extra sensors and equipment. The pilots and the loadmasters that come in, they are coming from the Air Force school pipeline. However, we do have these extra crew positions, a navigator and a weather officer or ROO that go through our own in-house school pipeline to be trained for the mission. The pilots and loadmasters, they also go through their own training process here. Obviously, what we're doing is considerably different than what really any other aviators out there are doing. Mm-hmm. Most everybody's looking to steer clear of the weather. We're driving through the worst of it and picking the safest <laughs> way through. Yeah. It requires a change of thought in how you approach this. Like any other military aircraft, there's specific tactics and procedures that go into flying the mission safely. So we have that same sort of thing. We have 10 full-time crews that are based here at Keesler. 
And in addition to that, we are a reserve unit. So we have the traditional reserves that come in during storm season to make the mission happen. So these reservists, like you might hear on old commercials, one weekend a month, two weeks a year, I mean, they might be airline pilots or any other profession, and then they also hang their hat with the reserve unit? Yeah, absolutely. Just for us, the two weeks a year is uh, in the middle of storm season, so it's a little more predictable that way, I guess, in some ways. Right. Yeah, and it's probably a little more than that. That's just the commercial I remember hearing. So, gents, one of the things I want to do today is we have a group of listeners who are generous enough to support the show financially. And so because of that, they get some perks like being able to ask questions. And I've got a couple here that I want to pose to you at different times. And since we're talking about the who, let me ask you this question from Jimmy Nicholson. He says, thinking back to Hurricane Laura, which is not that long ago already, seemed like the hunters were nearly airborne constantly in the days leading up to landfall. Does a hurricane hunter have multiple flight crews working in shifts with multiple aerial refuels or do aircraft swap in and out? So is this a time, Mark, I think it was your voice earlier that was telling me you've got 10 full-time, 10 reservists. If there's a storm that's going to make landfall, can you call folks up and bring them in because you know you're going to be a little busier or how does that work? Yeah, absolutely. So we're a little different than a normal reserve C-130 unit in that we have 10 full-time crews. And that's what allows us to be basically on call during hurricane season, able to launch on 16 hours notice into a storm. In the case of Laura, we were forward deployed out of Charleston because we were also at the same time looking at what was hurricane and then tropical storm Marco that was coming through this local area. So typically a deployment package will send three aircraft and three crews on the road, and they will be cycling through and flying, keeping aircraft more or less 24 hours mm-hmm. going. So we cycle through. A typical um, mission is going to run around eight to 10 hours. In the case of Laura, they would take off from Charleston, fly out over the Gulf, be in the storm environment for six hours, and then fly back. And then depending on how the timing works, the next crew is going to follow on and then do another six hours. So for the folks managing the flight schedules and crew rest and all that, you've got to keep close tabs on people's schedules effectively it can get pretty busy you know there's limits on crew duty periods and then overall flying time so that's when things get busy that's absolutely something that the scheduler is going to have to watch sure is how many hours people are racking up and then working the schedule so that it all flows well and speaking of the people here are some more victor jagasitz asks how does one become a hurricane hunter is it on request or an assignment so we talked a little bit about It's not just regular folks, but do people, once they come to your community, tend to stay or could they end up back in regular Air Force, as it were? I would say that people tend to come here and stay. For the most part, we all love the job and couldn't see doing anything else. People coming into the unit, there's a lot of folks that come off active duty like any other reserve unit and are coming in from some other community and are looking for a little different change in pace of life and lifestyle. They come in, they go through our training program, and they get qualified in the Hurricane Hunter mission, and then they oftentimes stay here for years. Mm-hmm. To kind of caveat to that question, or th- as far as how do people get here, it it really depends a lot on the crew position as well. So, like Major Withy here, he's a navigator, so uh, it made a good cross point, would you say, for your career to yeah. be able to come and fly the J, but yet be doing our mission and whatnot, so... Some of that depends on the crew position. You'll see a lot of pilots that are coming off active duty. They've flown in a regular C-130 unit 
for 10 years or so, and they're looking probably to go to the airlines and a little change of pace. Mm-hmm. For a lot of us navigators, we're coming from the older C-130 models that the Air Force on the active duty side has retired. We're looking for a place to call home. The weather officers, they're going to be usually coming from some other more traditional weather field. And then the load masters are pretty similar to the pilots as there's folks that come off active duty. But there's also new folks that go through and just start as reservists from the beginning. Okay. So you could take someone theoretically fresh out of flight school and adapt them to what your mission is and they can generally adapt okay? It's really like growing any other pilot or other crew position in the field. Mm -hmm. You know, you come in, you start as a co-pilot, you build that time and experience and just grow your skills in that. So yes, we do hire people fresh off the street and bring them up in the community. Okay. Well, I'm really interested to learn about the mission itself, but let's start with the what as far as the aircraft goes. So you're flying a WC-130, and as we learned on one of the episodes here on the show, the W means what? Adapted for weather, essentially, right? Yeah. So there's a few other aircraft in the Air Force inventory with the W prefix, but the the one that most people know is the WC-130. If you're looking at it from the outside, it's going to look very similar to any other J-model C-130. The big things from the outside is it has external fuel tanks added, which is essential for giving us the range that we need, or maybe endurance is the better word for that. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then outboard of the number four engine, there's a device called the SFMR that looks a lot like a, maybe a bomb rack, but it's a a sensor platform that looks at the ocean surface and gives us rain and wind speed data. Internally, the aircraft has some software tweaks to the radar to give it better presentation in areas of extreme precipitation. There's a lot of attenuation when you're flying through these storms, and we need the radar to be able to look as far as possible into the storm to give us the safest route through. Then there's some additional sensors, what a dew point hygrometer and the SFMR, which is the stepped frequency microwave radiometer which looks at the sea surface and gives you rain rate and wind speed. Then in the back, you're going to have two pallets that are set up with computer equipment for the loadmaster and the weather officer. The loadmaster is going to be the one that's dropping dropsons through uh, a port in the bottom of the aircraft into the storm and receiving that data back. And then I'll let Garrett talk about his crew position there in the back. Sure. So... We're pretty much right behind the bulkhead 245. So I guess for those not familiar with the C-130, we're really close to the flight deck. We're not far, far in the back of the cargo compartment. And we try to sit right there by the loadmaster. That way we can help communicate. In the storm environment, it's kind of one-two between uh, the load and the weather officer as far as uh, managing the data. I guess we can dive a little bit more into the, our job specific probably a little bit later on. But as far as our pallet setup, it's primarily just built with a computer there and then a few of our processors that help obviously receive and run the weather equipment so we can get our data. And then uh, we're obviously equipped with the radio so we can talk to the crew in the front. That's pretty much it. So it's a a pallet that can be easily removed from the back of the C-130 and it can be turned right back into what, you know, other military, I guess, C-130s typically look like. So Hmm. as far as structural differences with the WC-130J, there's not a lot different with the exception of those, you know, the two pallets at the back and a couple extra weather instruments. 
not like an AC-130 compared to a regular C-130. Obviously, that has quite a few modifications, but all right, that makes sense. How many folks total will be on a WC-130 during a mission? So basic crew is going to be pilot, co-pilot, navigator, weather officer, and loadmaster. We do fly some pretty long missions. So if we're on a, a longer flight, they're going to try and augment the crew positions just to give people a break. And, you know, in particular, the pilots, you know, we want somebody that's going to be able to be refreshed and rested to land aircraft at the end of a 10 or 12 hour mission. But the basic crew complement is five. So actually not as many as I expected, but that makes sense. Now, if you have extra folks, at this point, we can start talking about even the mission itself, but I don't know that much about this, but I would imagine if you're flying into a hurricane, there's probably going to be quite a bit of turbulence and bumping around. I mean, if a person's not on duty station, do they still have a place there? I don't know. Can you sleep through that? (laughs) You would be amazed at what people sleep through. And and (laughs) probably the best example of this is because of the nature of our mission, we have a lot of media flights that go on. And, you know, we'll have these some reporters up there on the flight deck for the first few hours. And then after that, they're racked out in the back, laying on the seats <laughs> and sleeping through it. Yeah. And there's just something about riding in the back of a Herc that the drone of the props puts people to sleep. So absolutely, people will sleep through anything. Oh, yeah. I remember. It's impressive at times. I've been on a few, and one took me to Baghdad, and yeah, similar story. But all right, guys, so let's go through either real world or notional, however you want to do it. But let's say you are going to go out and fly an extended mission to get information on a storm that's approaching the U.S. Where does it all begin? I mean, if you need to pre-deploy somewhere to get ready. Like I think you said Charleston earlier. That's one thing. But on the morning of a flight, obviously you're going to all meet, but is there an intensive brief or do you just kind of meet at the airplane and go? I I think I know the answer to that, but walk us through. Let's start with a theoretical mission here. All right. So from a mission planning perspective, I'll start with a little bit of the tasking process is that we're tasked from the National Hurricane Center through CARCA. Actually, meteorologists that are a part of the 53rd, but they sit at the National Hurricane Center. So there's civilians that are liaisons between the flying squadron here at Keesler and the forecasters actually on the desk floor in Miami. So when we say CARCA, we're talking about that, uh, a liaison, uh, about three individual meteorologists that work there. So we're going to get the tasking the day prior. That's going to go into our current ops. And current ops at Keesler will do a sort of notional plan for the mission Then day of, the crew is going to come in. The weather officer is going to be on the phone with the National Hurricane Center, getting an update to the the storm, and then pass that along to the navigator. The nav is going to update the flight plan and the mission materials. Then we will brief, typically maybe a 15, 20-minute process, then uh, step to the jet and go. Typically, we show two hours and 15 minutes prior to a flight, and it takes roughly 45 minutes to uh, crank and go once we go to the plane. And during that mission brief, before we step to the aircraft, after the, the weather officers called the National Hurricane Center, that's when we typically we start working specifically with the NAV as far as coming up with a flight plan, as far as how we want to attack the storm, where do we want to enter through, how long do we want our inbound and outbound legs. We start working on timing too. The National Hurricane Center kind of tasks us with certain fixed windows. So say uh, zero Z, you know, we have to be in the eye of the storm within an hour and a half 
of that time period. So that's when we start kind of ginning up the flight plans, coming up with the crew, and then, of course, talking about the meteorology aspect of it as well, as far as what quadrants are the most dangerous of the storm? Uh, what's the turbulence and lightning like from previous flights? What's our uh, altimeter setting? You know, different meteorological issues, if you will, that we're going to encompass in the hurricane. And we start coordinating that with the crew to uh, make sure we're all on the same page. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, you kind of look at it like a, any other combat mission. You're going to look at the most dangerous areas and how you want to bug out if things get ugly. So there's a lot of coordination on that between the crew members during that brief period. Oh, I would think so. And I wonder, maybe we can get to it, but when you're in that environment, I mean, weather can be extremely dangerous to aircraft. I mean, whether it's turbulence or lightning or hail or whatever, but when you're in the thick of it, are you able to navigate normally? I mean, like you said, pressures are changing. I assume radios are changing. Are you able to use your GPS or do you have special radios? Let's talk a little bit about some of the what would I call that? The uh, engineering of it, if you will. Once we're in the storm environment, we are going to be going from the entry point into the eye and trying to maintain the track. Having said that, there are features in a storm that we will be looking to avoid. And you still have GPS and all those traditional navigation aids, but really we're looking more at the radar for things we shouldn't fly through. And then as far as communications, we do have uh, SATCOM and a satellite phone. That's really a huge aid. We go in a lot of places out over the water where there isn't VHF or UHF radios that we can can make contact with. Mm-hmm. You know, HF is a hard way to go through life if you're having to talk to, to New York <laughs> Center or someone. Oh, I'm familiar. So mm-hmm. uh, having the SAT phone built into the aircraft is huge along with the SATCOM. All right. So I got a little ahead of myself, but let's go back. So you guys, uh, you, you brief, obviously you spend about 45 minutes getting everything spun up on deck. Then you take off C-130. So, I mean, you're not burning it up compared to what I'm used to in my F-18, but you spend some transit time getting out there and then you get to the storm. But on the transit, I have to think you're still updating, right? So you're thinking about, okay, did things develop the way I expected? Is this still the path we want to fly? Because as you guys will tell me in a moment, I'm guessing you don't just fly out there and just start poking around the storm. You probably have a specific pattern you're hoping to fly. Yeah, absolutely. So our goal is to Typically, if it's over open water, we'll fly what we call an alpha pattern. If you can kind of picture an X through the storm, that gets us different legs in the northeast, northwest, southwest, southeast quadrants, while you're also passing through the center every time you go through. Um, So that's kind of our generic path that we like to fly. So, for example, we would enter northwest bound and we would exit southeast bound. And then we always try to take a left turn. So we would fly left on our cross leg bound and enter northeast out southwest. And that's a lot to kind of try to picture verbally, but that's kind of our standard flight pattern that we aim for. So hmm. when we're, we're in transit, we're constantly communicating. The weather officers in the back communicating with the National Hurricane Center, trying to get updates. We unfortunately don't have broadband or internet on the aircraft right now. So it does make things a bit difficult once we're uh, wheels up as far as uh, knowing exactly what's going on with the storm. Cause as everyone knows, weather's constantly changing. Oh, yeah. We take in what we can and we update, you know, our alpha pattern, if you will, as needed. But uh, a lot of it is once we get in the storm environment, we start, you know, discovering things as we see it and we have to kind of make decisions on the fly. So 
that's one of the trickiest parts I would say from a, a weather officer standpoint in this is being able to meteorologically understand what's going on in the storm environment and then relaying that in a very standard but yet understanding way to the front end crew as far as working with the nav mm-hmm. trying to think three steps ahead constantly to make sure that we get where we need to go ultimately to find the weather we're looking for now unlike a b2 that might take off out of missouri and go fly a worldwide mission nobody hopefully is going to be able to track that a little different for you guys you're not quite as closed door secret like some air force operations you're quite public with all this right So one of the things you kind of alluded to earlier is that our missions are what's known as DISCA, or Defense Support of Civilian Authorities. Mm -hmm. Our tasking comes from the National Hurricane Center, which is under the Department of Commerce. Our tasking, as they come out, are publicly available. Our aircraft data streams are publicly available. And there's a lot of folks that like to watch as we're going on the missions and seeing the near real-time relay of wind and uh, other data as it comes back. Because there's a very obvious impact to the the public, we have a lot of uh, media flights and do a lot of public relations stuff because people like to know about it. And it's ultimately one of the big things we're doing this for is for the American public to stay safe from storms. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's really different from that perspective is everything is out there and and in the open. Yeah. Well, and you just said something, Mark, that triggered my thought. We have a very international audience on this show. Are there equivalents of what you guys do for other countries? Uh, Anyone else doing what you guys do? Not in a standard format like we do, but there are other countries I know that do more of a research-based versus operational base. Okay. Especially on the Pacific. I know uh, Japan at one point was uh, flying different aircraft into typhoons to gather research. Um, I don't know if they implement it into the operational models and, and use it for forecasts the same way that the United States does, but I do know that it's been experimented with on a more of a research level. But as far as a, an organizational of pure hurricane hunters and having assigned aircraft to that mission, uh, the United States uh, is the only country that does this. But I guess for the international listeners, we do take great pride in the fact that we're flying storms that not only will impact the United States, but other countries as well that fall in our uh, AOR. So sure. you know, whether that's Mexico, uh, any of the Caribbean islands, and uh, even Canada is at risk at times for tropical weather. So mm-hmm. if it's looking like it may make landfall in an international country, we absolutely will get tasked if it's in our AOR. Share the information. So that makes sense. Absolutely. Okay. It was designed to fly fast and at treetop level, carrying 24 nuclear weapons. Today, it bristles with smart bombs and guided missiles. The B-1 bomber, called the bone by those who fly and maintain it, is the most heavily armed bomber ever built. Sleek and powerful, the bone remains a mainstay of American air power 50 years after its first flight. Hey everyone, this is Ken Katz, call sign Primetime. And my book, The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber, tells the true story of this magnificent airplane. In this book, you'll read stories told to me by those who were there and see lots of great photos of the bone. Anyone with an interest in modern military aircraft will enjoy reading The Supersonic Bone. Available through the usual online retailers and aviation booksellers. Pick up your copy today.
So can we talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of the actual flight? You're going to go through this thing on these patterns. I assume, are we going through at different altitudes? Is there a speed we pick where we're not too close to overstressing, but we're not too close to stalling? I don't know where to begin. I want to overload you guys with questions, but let's talk about like actually penetrating the storm. Yeah, sure. So there's some variation depending on the, the storm, the intensity, but I'll kind of speak first to a basic flight through a decent sized hurricane is en route, we're going to be cruising out at 24, 26,000 feet, whatever we can climb to, depending on how heavy the aircraft is. We're oftentimes taken off completely loaded up with gas. It's warm down here, so it kind of limits our altitude. Once we start getting towards the storm environment, we're going to drop down to 10,000 feet, then slow down the aircraft. Our standard entry point to a storm, Garrett kind of talked about the alpha pattern. We're going to come in intercardinal headings and that pattern is going to begin 112 miles out from the center of the storm. So we're going to be dropping down to 10,000 feet, pulling the speed back to about 200 knots true. And that works out to be our around 180, our rough air penetration speed. Then we're going to drive in and the weather officer is going to have been on, on the SATCOM talking with National Hurricane Center, getting the, the latest position. And then as we're coming in, the navigator is going to be looking at the radar and trying to pick out what we can of the storm structure as we come in. The National Hurricane Center is going to be looking at radar or what previous flights have had, but storms wobble and do weird things. Mm -hmm. So it really pays to have as much of a radar picture as you can and find a way in. So coming in, you'll start a ways out seeing the rain bands coming around the eye and we'll just be driving in. When you start hitting the thick stuff, really depends on the size of the storm, but we'll be coming in, crossing through some rain bands, and then getting into the eye. And oftentimes from a little further out, you can break out a little more of the structure of the storm. But then once you're getting into those heavy rain bands, you're going to start seeing some pretty significant attenuation of the radar just because it's trying to look through some really heavy precipitation. Right. So the nav's going to be focusing on picking out the safest way through. Pilots are going to be working on keeping the, the aircraft as close as they can to the uh, altitude and airspeed. And the weather officer is going to be in the back kind of guiding the show as the mission director, looking at where exactly we need to go based on what his sensors are telling him. So it's really a, a big crew effort to get us through there. Once you start getting in to the inner bands, uh, you'll start getting some turbulence and pretty heavy precipitation. That's when uh, everybody's money's made because we'll be picking through some danger stuff. The pilots are going to be working to keep things going in the right direction. You're going to be looking at radar and say an eye is 10 miles across. That's a pretty big target. You know, you're hitting stuff a lot closer in your old job flying F-18s, but you're also thinking that we're dodging around stuff and we may not have a clear picture of where this thing exactly is. And so it, you really work together to, to try and find the center. Yeah. So as you get in, you're going to be hitting those really heavy bands in the eyewall. The thing that a lot of people compare it to is driving through a car wash because oftentimes you're just only able to see the props out there uh, on the wings and you're not seeing anything else just driving through. And then at some point you break out into the eye then the, the weather officer is going to start giving some turns to the crew hmm. based on what they see from their sensors to get us to the center of low pressure and circulation. 
Based on that point, Mark, one of our listeners, Dennis Petretti, had a question. He says, how is the C-130 set up for this turbulence and rain and wind structurally? Are there any modifications to the engines or props for the relight? So we talked earlier about how a C-130 modified to the WC-130 standard is pretty much just the same aircraft. But is there anything else that you guys have for the aircraft that allows you to fly through that? Or is that just the normal capabilities of a Hercules? It's pretty standard from a structural perspective. Uh, something I mentioned earlier is we do have the external fuel tanks on the wings. Mm-hmm. Those were placed on the wings for structural reasons. The older model, H model, WC-130s, they additionally had an internal fuel tank. And obviously that reduces some drag, but there is a structural advantage to having that fuel out there on the wings and sort of balancing the load on the aircraft. Okay. But otherwise, it's a standard C-130J Okay. And then another listener, Jim Gundog, wants to know, considering the turbulence, what's the farthest distance you've dropped or gained? So in my airliner, we sometimes have these sudden drops or rises because of just regular turbulence. But you guys, I don't know, how severe is it? Are you guys strapped in pretty securely or is it just a minor nuisance? (laughs) It really depends on the storm. Um, And even on the storm, it depends on our leg in or out. It varies so much. But I know on our last flight here through, actually, this tropical storm, Marco, and the Gulf of Mexico, I think at one point we lost about 140 meters in altitude in about 30 seconds. So, uh, math, that's probably, what, 500 feet in 30 seconds? So, Mm. it was a pretty rapid descent as far as uh, turbulence goes. But as far as just losing altitude from a pressure altitude to radar altitude, We'll be in stronger Cat 5 storms, and obviously the pressure gradient is very tight when you're flying in the storm. So we're flying at 10,000 pressure altitude, and our radar altimeter in the, uh, the eye of the storm is down in the 7,000s. So we're down about 3,000 feet closer to the water which is why we like to be at 10,000 feet. It gives us a little bit more of a cushion. <laughs> yeah, that does make sense. <laughs> There's maybe a few different things. You're going to have turbulence that's going to shake the aircraft. Then you're going to also have kind of like overall flow of the air, just the air mass is moving down. So it may not necessarily be a an abrupt kind of feel, but the aircraft will be descending. So it, it's not uncommon to see a few hundred feet variation. I think some folks have seen a few thousand feet at times. That's obviously going to get a little little scarier for everyone. Right. Sure. It can be a few thousand feet at times, but it's normally of just a few hundred. Now, when we think of thunderstorms, we always think of hail. And of course, lightning can be a problem. Is hail an issue for you guys? Or I don't know that much about hurricanes, I'll be honest. Hail's obviously in colder environments. But that being said, there are tropical systems, especially early in the year that I've flown, where we have started experiencing some hail, which is a very interesting dynamic when you're in an aircraft. Yeah. But it's usually relatively small just because we're operating in a, you know, a tropical environment. Mm-hmm. But as far as the lightning and thunderstorms go, that's a definite, as you can imagine. Oh, yeah. We experience, at times, it's constant lightning, which is... Uh, a very unique feeling, I'd say. Oh, yeah, true. We see rain and hail that's real heavy, and it beats on the aircraft pretty severely. The leading edges take a pretty good beating and require touch-up throughout the year. And as you're flying through some of that extreme precipitation, you start getting a real strong ozone smell in the cockpit just from the electricity passing oh, wow. through the aircraft. A unique thing that I haven't experienced flying in, in other aircraft. So speaking of that, and to jump ahead a little bit, listener Terry Alberta wants to know, are there any extra post-flight inspections required after you land? 
Not really. One of the things that we do that a lot of people seem kind of intrigued by is send the aircraft through a freshwater rinse afterwards. Mm -hmm. Obviously, if we're struck by lightning, they'll be doing some post-flight inspections on that. But apart from that, the post-flight does not seem significantly different than any other C-130 I've flown in. Okay. So you are flying through the storms. You're taking measurements internally. You're also dropping various sensors out of the rear. And then once you leave the storm, is there any other residual information you can get from those sensors or anything else? Or is once you're off station, is that pretty much it? Yeah, typically once we're off station, that's uh, just about it for us. The drop sounds that we're releasing from the aircraft, once they hit the water, they terminate. So we usually get about four minutes of the drop sounds in the air. Uh, Once it splashes, that's it. The rest of the equipment, um, like Mark mentioned earlier with the step frequency microwave radiometer, that's attached to the aircraft. When we leave, it leaves with us, of course. And then a lot of the flight level data is coming from just the pitot tubes of the aircraft. So it's pretty much uh, all equipped with us. And when we're out of the storm, the data comes with us. Well, that seems logical. And hence, at different times, you might have an aircraft that's relieving you on the way out there if you're coming in. Obviously, you have ways to deconflict with relief with the other aircraft or if you guys are out there at the same time as NOAA, is there a common frequency or you just have some sort of data link where you can keep monitor each other? It's actually uh, pretty well spelled out and we typically won't have two of our WC-130s in a storm at the same time. I can't ever think of an instance where that's occurred, but it is pretty uh, common for NOAA to be flying in storms at the same time. As I kind of mentioned before, their mission is different than ours. Mm -hmm. So we may be flying at the same time, but they're looking at different things. They fly sometimes little different patterns, and they're going to be looking at different aspects of the storm. Yeah. But yeah, we have a a, a whole deconfliction protocol off the top of my head. If we're in a storm together outside of 10 miles, we're going to keep 1,000 feet altitude separation. Within 10 miles, we're going to keep 2,000 feet vertical separation. And then we're going to be using tools like air-to-air tack and to deconflict. And then obviously we can talk to them on the radios to deconflict. Then also uh, a big concern is not dropping a weather instrument through the other guy's windshield as we're going through. But we have a pretty well worked out to deconflict aircraft that are flying in the storms at the same time. Well, and that's only logical. Obviously, last thing you want to do is uh, have a problem and bump into each other. And on that note, I will say I learned so much from this show from guests like you gentlemen. Thank you very much. But I was surprised when I had a former Blue Angel skipper on and we learned that almost any maneuver they do, they have a bailout, if you will. And I assume it's the same for the Thunderbirds. I just haven't had them on the show yet. But do you guys have specific procedures you will either brief or follow or be ready for if something unfortunate happens at a particularly unfortunate point in time? So in other words, if you're just about to cross into the eye, which is, I assume, where the tightest winds are and and all that, and, and you lose an engine, do you have particular protocols you'll follow? Yeah, so I think Garrett kind of touched on that when we were talking about the pre-flight and the most dangerous quadrants of the storm. Mm -hmm. But that is something we will have pre-briefed an exit strategy for that. And yes, we do. One of the things that a lot of people ask is, are you flying over the storm or through the storm? We are absolutely flying through the middle of the storm at 10,000 feet. One of the things that really gets pushed is we don't bug out by going out over the top of a storm. We will head for the weakest quadrant and find the best way out towards a uh, an alternate airfield if required. Mm-hmm. But you really can't 
overfly a hurricane. You know, it's in the tropics, but the lapse rate still applies. And if you try and climb up and out, you're going to run into severe icing. And while the turbulence and precipitation carries its own risks flying through the storm, you can't deal with severe icing in really any aircraft. Well, yes, that is true. So do you have parachutes, for example? I mean, and is that even an option? Obviously, you would want to get out of the storm if you really got into trouble. Or or for that matter, is there any history of aircraft being particularly distressed in these roles? We do have parachutes on board, but like you said, I mean, it's tough because (laughs) we're experiencing, you know, at times 150 plus knots of wind. And, uh, you know, if there's an emergency, I think most of us feel more comfortable working it through the aircraft versus taking our chance in a parachute. But uh, yeah, I don't know, Mark, do you have anything to add? Yeah, we do carry parachutes. (laughs) And, And one of the things that, you know, to keep in mind is that we are flying sometimes for hours in route either way before we get in the storm environment. We do have parachutes. Right. Obviously, if we get into a situation of a storm, we're going to try and get the aircraft out because bailing out into a hurricane is, doesn't seem like a particularly survivable scenario. No. But yeah, we have parachutes and all the usual emergency equipment that you'd have. Sure. So we've been poking around these storms for what, 70 or 80 years? Any history of aircraft either having to ditch or had any trouble in these storms? The last one that really comes to mind, there was a uh, C-130 that was lost in the early 70s during a, a typhoon in the Pacific. But uh, our safety record is pretty good. We've got pretty thoroughly developed techniques to fly into these. You know, like anything there, we have some we're flying in an extreme environment, so there are going to be hair-raising moments, but our safety record is pretty solid. Did they ever decide what the cause was of that? And I'm sorry that I did not know about it, or I might have asked it a little more sensitively, but was the crew lost? Yes, the crew was lost, and I don't think a definitive cause was ever determined. Uh, I'm sorry to hear that. That's one of the things that you got to think about is that if you do lose an aircraft, it's going to be in and in particularly before the the era of satellite communications, you're not going to necessarily have a good idea where it's going to be. And it's going down into an area that's going to be pretty battered by a storm. Nowadays, we have a lot of satellite tools that uh, everyone can pretty much watch us in real time where we are. But uh, our safety record's been pretty solid. Awesome. Okay. I still have a couple listener questions. If you don't mind, I'll just rattle through a few of these. Andrew McDonald wants to know, what are the characteristics of an ideal weather reconnaissance aircraft? Uh, Specifically, are turboprops preferred over jets due to the water ingestion and whatnot? So I presume the C-130 will be the platform of choice for a while. Is it a good platform or are there some features you wish you had that maybe it doesn't? Yeah, I'd say the C-130 is a pretty ideal platform. Kind of touching on the one thing, that turboprops, they offer a, a much quicker throttle response than other more pure jet engines. And that's really necessary for making quick adjustments when the winds shift and you're dealing with turbulence throwing you around. Mm-hmm. So from that perspective, the turboprops, very advantageous. And then just in general, it's really good to have a big blender in front of that intake that's going to help cut some of the rain and or hail that's going into the right. engine. Obviously, a little water can be beneficial for thrust in jet engines. I know that there was water injection in some of the older aircraft, like the old KC-135 variants. That's right. But we can also then get to the point where too much water then can uh, cause the engines to bog down a bit. 
you know, an ideal uh, hurricane hunter aircraft is going to have uh, multiple engines for uh, kind of a safety factor. Mm -hmm. You see that in both what we fly and NOAA flies a variant of the uh, Navy P3, the WP3D. Although we have a little different mission, the, the form factor of our aircraft is kind of similar. You got these four engine turboprops that fly through storms. Well, that sounds about as much uh, precaution as you can take uh, to me anyway. So, all right. Uh, let's see. Matthew Brahms wanted to know about airspeeds. I think we covered those. Maybe this question from him, is there a point at which flights cannot be flown anymore safely? So again, we talked about you're looking for the best route through. Does there ever come a point where you say, uh-oh, conditions have changed or maybe something's closing up on us and you need to bail out? Do you have some sort of procedure like that? There are aspects of the storm that we will will avoid as we're flying through mm -hmm. but i've never been on a flight with a functional aircraft where there has been something we wouldn't fly through now having said that we will only fly our missions over water part of that is the sensor platform the sfmr only works over water but also as storms make landfall you're going to start seeing a lot more risk from mechanical turbulences those high winds move over land features generate turbulence and then potentially tornadic activity that could be very destructive for an aircraft right but apart from that the first few years i was here uh, with the unit it seemed like all i flew was cat four and five hurricanes and uh, there's challenges to those but we don't have any problems with it yeah yeah, and it's actually, it's a little counterintuitive, but a lot of times it's the kind of the weaker storms that actually provide a rougher ride um, and sometimes more dangerous weather, believe it or not, more of the tropical storms and whatnot. I know Tropical Storm Marco, before it really ginned up into the hurricane in the Gulf, it had just <laughs> pretty much, it looked like uh, supercells lined up uh, right near the center of the storm. And so uh, it was very challenging. We were at a lower altitude. I believe we were at 2,500 feet. So at that point, you know, you have a little less room for air. When you start seeing V notches and hook echoes that you see, you know, in the center plains of the United States over the water, that's something that you want to avoid. You know, even though our job is to fly through the worst of weather, we, we work with the nav to try to pick ourselves around those uh, hook echoes mm -hmm. if possible. So that's, I'd say, the only weather that we truly try to avoid um, besides icing, like you mentioned earlier. But. And a hook echo, let's see, I can put myself on report here because I was supposed to learn this in my own civil flying, but that is a particular phenomenon that will appear on your radar to say that there's a weather condition that uh, is what particularly hazardous because of the turbulence or the icing? Typically, it's uh, associated with tornadoes. So it's a mesovortice or it's okay. strong winds going in opposite directions, which is typically not ideal <laughs> to fly through. I mean, it's how kind of tornadoes typically develop, okay. um, especially over land. But sometimes you do see the similar dynamics over the water as well. One of the big things is looking at the radar and looking for those features like the hook echoes that would indicate that there's a, a more tornadic type of activity. And, and you'll see those, uh, hmm. you know, semi-commonly embedded in the eye walls. And, you know, over water, that's going to be more in like a water spout. There's obviously some even stronger winds in there, but there's also going to be a lot of water that that's sucking up from the, the ocean. Mm -hmm. And those are, are really things you don't want to run into in the aircraft. So we're kind of walking a fine line between flying through some pretty heavy thunderstorm type activity with really strong winds and avoiding those little features that you really, really don't want to fly into. 
Right. And thanks for saying that. They're definitely water spouts if they're over water. That's more or less a tornado is uh, a water spout when it's over water. But you'll see them kind of make the transition. Uh, A couple years ago when Hurricane Irma was coming through the Caribbean, I was blinded as it was making landfall over the island of Barbuda. And medicine vortices and eyewall, and as they came over Barbuda, they kind of went from being water spouts to these tornadoes that just scoured that island clean. And they ended up evacuating everyone on the island. Uh, I think it was the first time in something like 400 years that that island had been entirely uninhabited. So there's a lot of those kind of things. And then as they are become tornadoes, they're going to be picking up stuff from the ground. And that's, you know, another thing we don't want to run into is debris that gets sucked up into uh, a tornado. Yeah, I would think not. So was part of the reason they were able to, I presume, successfully evacuate the entire island because of the information you provided? Yeah, uh, that's really one of the big reasons why we do what we do. Now, I can't speak specifically to the timeline of how Barbuda was evacuated, but that's really one of the, the big things for us is getting the data to the National Hurricane Center so they can give the most accurate forecasts on where a storm is going. And people, you know, sometimes ask, okay, it costs a lot of money to send these planes all over the place flying through, but you have to take into account the cost of evacuating the shoreline. Mm-hmm. When I, I was Googling it the other day, just doing some research for the show, and, and the top Google answer was uh, about a million dollars a mile to evacuate wow. shoreline. And when we go and fly, we're giving data to the National Hurricane Center that allows them to rapidly shrink that cone of where the, the uh, hurricane might be going, which in turn decreases the amount of shoreline that's going to have to be evacuated. And then for those areas that are going to be hit the worst, like what we just saw with Laura, you know, get everybody out of there to minimize the loss of life. And another th- important thing, so obviously there's economic impacts as well, but it's from a meteorologist standpoint, it's kind of the social science of it as well that's really important is reducing the crying wolf, if you will, uh, as far as warning people that don't typically or should be warned and warning those that, you know, legitimately have a threat to their life. And so um, getting that trust of the public for meteorologists is, is very important to us. And so, you know, by reducing the amount of people we have to evacuate, that are unnecessarily evacuating can, you know, hopefully build and kind of bridge that gap of trust. And so uh, when you are warned, you know, take it very seriously because life-threatening conditions, you know, may be coming your way. Well, and I think, I mean, I'm no psychologist, but I bet someone out there has done a study on this is you warn people and they all jump through their rear ends to go do something and then it doesn't materialize. I don't know what else to call it, but the goodwill that you've lost, if you will, is enormous because then the next time you could be right, but they all say, oh, you know, no, we don't need to because look what happened last time. So yeah, the cry wolf probably is the best way to put that. So Okay. The last listener question I have is from Christian Gruder, who says, uh, what happens to all the data you capture in flight? And you guys might have already answered this, and I apologize if I missed it. But essentially, the point of Christian's question is, is it completely uh, streamed back real time, or do you have to carry it back, if you will, and download it when you land? So the, the aircraft data coming through the pitot tubes is sent out, it's packaged and sent out every 10 okay. minutes uh, to the, directly to the National Hurricane Center via satellite. And then as far as our other data, say our drop sons and other weather instruments that we're gathering information about the storm, we send those out 
kind of when the meteorologist has had a chance to quality check it to make sure that it's as accurate as possible. Mm-hmm. But they're getting them. I mean, when we hit send on our computer, they're probably receiving it in Miami in about 30 seconds. So oh, wow. um, they're absolutely getting, you know, live information from the storm. And then from there, the forecasters can use that data to build, you know, the best forecast possible. But then they're also going to Offutt Air Force Base in Nebraska, where they can eventually get sent into, um, like Mark mentioned earlier, the the weather models. So I don't know if there's you know a big weather community that listens, but the GFS, the Euro, kind of those big weather models that a lot of us think about, it gets sent into those models and can greatly improve what the forecasters have to work with, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, good information in, good information out, and so yeah. you know that's where we take the most pride is making sure that everything's as accurate as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Just to kind of expand on that. So Garrett was talking about the data that's coming in through the pedostatic system, but then the SFMR is also streaming that data back with the wind speeds and rain rates on the surface. And then he's packaged up the drops on data. As we go through the storm, I mentioned earlier, we start out at 112 miles from the center. Then at 105 miles, we're going to be kicking out a drop sound. And Kind of the best way to think about it is a Pringles can that has a GPS and some sensors so you can get temperature, humidity, wind speed, and all that sort of stuff, which is relayed back to the plane. So we're dropping the drops on at 105 miles out from the center. Then as we go through the max wind band in the eye wall, then at the center of low pressure in the eye, and then going back outbound through the max wind band and then out at 105 miles. And that's drops on data is what Garrett's going to be packaging up to send back. Okay. Do you do these missions only in the day or do you do day and night equally? No, we'll, we'll fly around the clock. Um, okay. You know, like it was kind of mentioned earlier, that a lot of times we'll have a flight going on in the storm environment and another, you know, C-130 is already en route on its way. So, you know, we kind of wave to them outside the storm on the way back to base, but uh, it's a constant rotation of aircraft taking off and uh, sampling, you know, the weather environment 24 seven, as long as needed to be done. I guess that kind of brings up a good point too. We can sometimes fly three different storms from three different locations. Typically takes about three aircraft per storm. So at that point, you know, we're looking at nine to 10 C-130s scattered across where we need to and pretty much flying continuously 24-7 until everything quiets down. Yeah, yeah, and that's, I mentioned earlier, kind of the, the persistent nature of our mission is that we're going to be flying around the clock. Depending on how close the storm is to making landfall, the National Hurricane Center is going to want us to be uh, giving them data. If it's a ways out, they're going to want to fix on the storm every 12 hours once it gets closer in every six hours. So we'll be going in, hitting a time, and then we'll be continuously flying through the storm for six hours until we get to our second fixed time. And then the next aircraft will come along. Mm -hmm. Once the storm's in closer to shore, it's going to be going down to every three hours. So like when Laura was about to make landfall, you'd see near continuous presence in the storm. That'd be just kind of a short break as one aircraft goes out and then the next one's preparing to hit the next time three hours later. And if I remember correctly, hurricane season, roughly what, beginning of May to the beginning of November? Yeah, June through November. Right now, we're seeing a pretty active year. Typically, we're, we're starting to see things ramp up right now, end of August, early September. Mm-hmm. But this year has been pretty active, and you'll see a lot of activity in September, and then it starts yeah. to taper off into October. 
So the corollary then is, what do you guys do? And I'm not accusing you of just sitting around doing nothing, but what does November through June look like? That's a good question, and people do wonder that. Uh, Garrett mentioned earlier that we do fly the winter storms, those northeasters off the East Coast. Mm -hmm. In the off-season, we do a variety of other things. Uh, he'd also mentioned the Atmospheric River Project. That's something we do in cooperation with University of California, San Diego, and the Scripps Institute there. We will be based out in California and Hawaii flying missions into the atmospheric water transfer across the Pacific. And that's typically month, month and a half long campaign where we'll be doing that. And that keeps us pretty busy in the off season. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Speaking of the atmospheric river, I think there was one in 2015 ish. I think it was called the pineapple express that ruined a fishing trip that I had planned in Northern California. It came in and just dumped a ton of water and blew out the river. So I'm aware of what those are, but at the time I'd never heard of such a thing. So pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, it's people's vacations, and also it's other things like the, uh, you're probably familiar with the Oroville Dam oh, that, yeah. uh, that washed out a few years ago. Yes. And giving the officials the ability to better manage the water inflow and outflow from those lakes is really critical because dams are expensive capital mm -hmm. projects that are not easily replaced, and California needs all the water it can get, but they also need to manage it so you don't get those blowouts. That's right. All right, my last question, and this is based off a news headline from about a year ago, August of 2019. It was our commander-in-chief who wanted to know if we could just nuke hurricanes. Now, you guys are experts on hurricanes, but I don't know if you're experts on nukes, but why is or is that not a good idea? That's a question we get asked a lot. Really? And it's kind of one of those things like, oh, yeah, somebody's asking the nuke question again. Garrett can speak a little more in depth on the uh, dynamics of hurricanes, but I think the short answer is that a hurricane is packing an, an amount of energy that dwarfs what nuclear weapons can produce. And, and I have to look at the actual numbers, but it's like an atomic bomb going off every few minutes with this enormous weather system. So you could drop a bomb into it. And really what you're doing is you're going to pump more heat into a storm that is feeding off the heat energy of the ocean. <laughs> and while you may get, you know, some disruption of the eye, you're really just pumping more heat into it. You know, you're going to get a bunch of radioactive water. Yeah, Let's just add that to it. It's like sharks with laser beams. <laughs> Mark, to your point, I found a Business Insider article that says a fully developed hurricane every 20 minutes releases the same amount of energy as 10 megaton nuclear weapons. So wow. that's crazy. All right. So theoretically interesting idea that is not very practical. Can we leave it at that. I think that sounds good from my perspective. <laughs> yeah, we get a variety of, of people with interesting theories about, you know, what we can do to stop the storms. And it's great if the scientists at some point come up with a way to do it. It would be a, a tremendous benefit. I think, what was it, Hurricane Michael that ran into Florida mm -hmm. two years ago, did something in the neighborhood of $25 billion in damage just overall. But then from a military perspective, kind of since this is a podcast focused on military aviation, is Tyndall Air Force Base, which the home of the F-22 train, just had a billion dollars of damage or in that neighborhood just yeah. by itself. And if there was a way we could do this, great. It would be a, a real boon to everyone. But as of yet, there's no way to turn a hurricane or stop it. Well, I think people just don't have a way 
of imagining the amount of energy. Not to go on a tangent, but when we talk about the national deficit or a trillion dollars or something, there's no way for most of us, especially us military folks, to really get an appreciation for just how much money that is. And so the amount of energy, as we just talked about in these storms, is immense. It's incredible. Yeah, it really is. And that's it, one of the things with flying through it is you really get an appreciation for how big these storms are. You know, we're flying through it, but we're also at its mercy as we go through it. Well, guys, this has been really fascinating. I've learned so much, and I think I finally understand that a hurricane is on either side of the states, and let's see if I got this right. A cyclone is in the southern hemisphere, and a typhoon is kind of in the eastern hemisphere? Yeah, western Pacific, so, yeah. All right. I was close. All right. Yeah. So I learned that, theoretically. Okay. I learned what you guys do and how you do it, why, where, when, and all that. This is good stuff. I mean, what did I not ask you? What does the public need to know about your mission, your role? I think the big thing, uh, you know, from my perspective is just that, you know, we're going out in these high energy uh, storms, kind of like you just mentioned, and uh, we do it to collect the best data to keep ultimately the public safe. And so when local government agencies, whether that's the National Weather Service, the National Hurricane Center or your emergency managers tell you to do something like it comes from a, a lot of time, our data. And it means a lot for us if, you know, people pay heed to those warnings and advisories that local officials are telling them. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the big thing for us is, is we're, you know, doing a, a rather risky job to ensure that, you know, people listen to what the forecasters are saying. No doubt. All right. Well, then we can transition to our final couple questions that are standard for every episode here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Garrett, we'll start with you. What does the future hold? You're an Air Force captain, so you're going to keep playing the game a while? Yeah, I imagine so. Uh, that's definitely the plan right now. That's the fun thing, I guess, about the reserves is it gives you an option to do different TDYs and kind of mm -hmm. and, and PCSs even to go out and, and do different things as far as professional growth in different areas of the military. So I did a tour over at USAFEF Africa. It's headquarters um, working in the future operations office over there. So I did that for about a year and I'll probably continue to fly hurricanes here for a bit and then uh, kind of pick and choose different things is, uh, is kind of what I see that would help me in my career. So, <laughs> All right. Fair enough. And I think at some point we need to get you a call sign. I was kind of hoping maybe one would pop into my mind here during our conversation, but I'll have to leave it to you, uh, Mark, and the others to give Garrett a good call sign so you can come back and tell us <laughs> later how and why and all that. So anyway, Garrett, appreciate you joining us. All right, Mark, we'll wrap up with you. Uh, how about you? What's the future hold? Well, I've been in for 15 years, and at this point, I love this job, and I couldn't see doing anything else at this point. I'm the reserves is a little different in the duration uh, that you can spend in, and I'm looking forward to spending another 15 years doing this mission. It's really one of the most satisfying things I've done in my Air Force career, and uh, I just want to keep doing it uh, until it comes to retirement time. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, that is such a servant's heart. And it always amazes me that people that come on this show and talk about the different roles that they have. In fact, I want to circle back really quickly, if I could. You talked about wanting to be a pilot in the eyes thing. And I hear from young people all the time, well, young and older, who wanted to be pilots but couldn't. I always tell them, you know, call it God, call it Darwin, whatever you want. Everyone's got their own journey and everyone's is different. And so I want to ask you, in the grand scheme of things, are you disappointed that you're not a pilot? Are you happy with where you ended up? How would you advise a young person who's concerned with their eyes and their future and maybe as a military person? You know, what I would say is that keep following your dream until you get told no by somebody who actually 
is in a position to say, no, I'd wanted to be a, a military aviator growing up, but I didn't have great eyes. And so I, I'd kind of went and, and did other things when I went to college. But after college, I had a uh, good friend who worked at the Air Force Flight Test Center at Edwards Air Force Base. I ended up spending quite a bit of time out there at Edwards in 2001. And that really reignited my interest in flying. And uh, he really encouraged me, hey, go get checked out. So I, I went and uh, went through the process to get a, uh, a flying physical. And, you know, the word was, no, you don't have the eyes to be a pilot, but you can be a nav. And I don't get to steer the bus, but I still get a seat on the bus. And it's been a really rewarding career. And I'm very glad I pursued it the way I have. And I would really encourage everyone else that may be interested, that may think that they may have some limitations to keep trying. There's been a lot of advances with eye surgery and stuff in recent years. And, you know, you can get LASIK or whatever and even change that stuff sometimes. Yeah. In my case, I'd looked at going to pilot training a few years ago, but at this point it was kind of like, I've got a career as a nav that's well-established and, you know, sometimes you have to be happy with where you're at and appreciate what you got. Oh, and that's the message I try to pass on all the time to listeners of the show who are worried about it is your journey is going to be different. So you got to enjoy it and, and just roll with it because you never know how it'll turn out. So I appreciate that. All right. So Mark, before we started recording, you told me someone at some point bestowed the title, the Reverend on you. So I've got to hear about this call sign. So how did someone come up with the Reverend for major Mark Withy? Uh, so I would be maybe one of those rare instances where my call sign was somewhat self-generated. <laughs> and that came from back in uh, 2006, I was working in a tactics cell at uh, IED in Qatar. One of the pilots in the squadron that thought he might need to get married in a hurry. And so I, I went through a, a rigorous 45-minute online ordination <laughs> process. The long and short of it was is that to get married from overseas wasn't strictly legal. Uh, so we, that didn't happen then, but I did go through that process. And then uh, since then, I've performed uh, four marriages in, in various units I've been in and, and <laughs> give uh, invocations and various things at squadron events. So I got my Reverend Mark Withy name patch and uh, it's kind of become my call sign. Outstanding. Well, <laughs> that explains why we won't have to add a bunch of bleeps to this uh, interview. So appreciate that, of course, this being a family show. But anyway, all right, good stuff. Well, gentlemen, thanks so much for your time today. And uh, hopefully you get a little downtime here between storms, but I really learned a lot. And I just want to thank both of you for taking the time, not only to spend an hour and 20 minutes with us here on the show, but for going out and doing day in, day out, what helps keep us all safe. Yeah, you're welcome. It's great talking to you, Jello. Yeah, thanks, Jello. Appreciate it. All right. Well, big thanks again to the whole 53rd Weather Reconnaissance Squadron team and especially to Mark and Garrett for taking time out of their busy hurricane season to explain their mission and the aircraft. I don't know about you, Recky, but I sure learned a lot, as I often do on this show. I cannot imagine how you start out as a meteorologist and then end up in the back of one of these aircraft. Like that to me still kind of blows my mind. But the reservist side is just like, you're in your normal job on like a week mm -hmm. and you're going about your life and you're driving. And then what are you doing over the weekends? Like, Oh, I'm going to fly into a hurricane. So these reservists, <laughs> just their ability, like their ability to just kind of like flip the switch and go from their 
like normal career where they're handling like office politics to be like, okay, let's get the crew in the right mindset to like fly into a hurricane. That's pretty epic. Oh yeah. No, I agree with you. And, uh, just crazy guys. But the fact that so many of them end up sticking with it, I just think is a real testimony to the brotherhood as I call it. And I should probably come up with a different name, but just the shared burdens and sacrifice and the importance of the mission. And so that's really cool. But I'll tell you, uh, Mark emailed me not long after that interview and told me that he had found out that day he'd been selected for promotion to Lieutenant Colonel. So congratulations to you, Mark, and all the other selectees. Now, Recky, so in the episode there, I didn't know, or I should say in the interview, I didn't know that you would end up coming back to co-host this. So thanks very much. But fill us in, if you will, a little bit on some of the differences that they alluded to between NOAA and the Air Force in this mission, if you will. Well, just like anything that involves the Air Force, NOAA is just better, right? Because <laughs> there's that rivalry that I'll always have from being a prior Navy oh, boy. And our Air Force uh, inter-service transfer we just got is going to love that I made that comment. So they talked about what they're doing is they're mostly hurricane reconnaissance, and then they're starting to pick up the atmospheric rivers and some of the East Coast storms. NOAA has a lot of other science missions. So where the Air Force is that immediate kind of tracking the storm and seeing you know where it's progressing and where it's going to hit, NOAA is getting that data. We're also really focused on how the storm is developing. And so we have a hurricane field program that comes out and it kind of delineates, you know, how the biggest initiatives that they're going after for the science. So big picture, no, it's just like a lot more science focused and they're sharing all that data with the hurricane center, but with a lot of the other line offices that make up NOAA and then international partners, research partners that are interested in that. Okay. So drawing a parallel to our military side here, would you say maybe I don't know if it's a fair comparison, but maybe is NOAA a bit more strategic and the Air Force is a little more tactical? Or are you guys maybe more in it for the science and the theoretical and they're more in it for, hey, everybody, this thing's heading to you, so get out of the way? Is that a fair comparison, do you think? I think so. Yeah, it overlaps quite a bit. So we have different radars. They have the FMR. We have that and a lot of other radars. We fly different patterns. We're flying for the Hurricane Research Center. We're also flying for the environmental modeling center. So sometimes we have to penetrate the storm like a couple different times and we fly different patterns. So yeah, I, I would agree with the strategic statement, like the big picture, like we're trying to figure out what's causing these to form. We'll have the Gulf, we have our Gulf stream. We'll head out ahead of the storm and start to take data even before the storms like arrive to that area. Our drop signs are a little bit different. So strategically we can get earlier forecasts but we're still tasked the same way by the hurricane center when to fly like in different time periods that the air force isn't flying. So there's always coverage on where the eye is and where the projected path is. Gotcha. So there's a little bit of overlap, but I would agree like it's a lot bigger picture and NOAA has a lot of other aircraft and a lot of other missions that they do outside of just the hurricane season. I might've missed it earlier when you updated us on what you've been up to. I, I thought you were relatively new at NOAA. Have you had a chance to go out and fly a storm yet? I flew uh, last week on Hurricane Nana right before doing my P3 check ride. So that was my warm up. Oh, <laughs> I was flying okay. into a tropical storm. <laughs> and that was so awesome. Like the crew was really fun. I saw someone was like, is it scary? 
if you, if that time that you were in your F-18 and you were going through that storm and you were just kind of like, oh, this will probably work out. If you had had like one of the world's best meteorologists, if you mm-hmm. had had one of the world's best meteorologists sitting behind you being like, all right, Jello, just hold this heading. Now I need you to come five degrees right. It would be a completely different ball game. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they were reading back like, hey, I really hold this heading because the thing to the right and the left of you is like the most intense storm return that we can see on the radar. Like, oh, okay. That's like a pretty good incentive to like be on parameters. Yeah. But it was cool. And seeing the crew work together is awesome. It was really fun. So I'm yeah. super excited to get back on the hurricane watchville in October. I bet. Well, so Mark and Garrett tighten us up a little bit, as we like to say, on the WC-130. What can you tell me compared to the P-3 you used to fly about the WP-3? So for the WP-3, it's a little bit more like the EP-3, just that it has so many radars attached to it aerodynamically. Okay. Structurally, it's got a little bit more uh, support for loads on the wings. We look a lot at the G-limit, the vertical. Like they'll look at the, the, when you get thumped, there's a G-meter in the back just so we watch those limits a lot more for turbulence than I ever remember doing the P3. So there's a tail Doppler radar, which is in the back, which is where the mad boom used to be. So there's still like a funny tail on the WP3s. There's a multi-mode radar. That's the big round belly radar. And then a stepped frequency microwave radar, similar to the what they described on the C-130. There's a cloud microphysics pylon, which I, there's no way I could ever describe to you how it works, but it's like a pylon out on the wing. Uh-huh. Uh, there's also a Doppler wind LIDAR, wide swath radar altimeter, and a couple other instruments that the line offices or the different universities will like buy time on NOAA to fly. When you look, there's two P3s at NOAA. We don't have as many aircraft as the 53rd have, but there's two P3s at NOAA. They're Kermit and Miss Piggy. Kermit has a pitot tube out on the nose. That's how you can tell them apart. And it's really long, like you see in flight tests, because it has to be outside of the boundary layer and like any of the aerodynamic changes that happen around the aircraft. Okay. Uh, Miss Piggy does not have a pitot system on her nose. So that's how when you see the NOAA aircraft in the blue and white, that's how you can tell whether the P3 is Kermit or Miss Piggy. All right. Yeah. Important. <laughs> so, Recky, when I think of both NOAA and the 53rd out there flying a storm, I think back to the awesome movie Twister. And you've got Bill Paxton's team who's uh, racing around trying to figure it out with uh, the other actress. I forget her name suddenly. And then you got Carrie, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. You know, he was Wesley in The Princess Bride. But you got his team are the bad guys and they're, they're chasing the same storm. Are you guys uh, competitors or are you working together? And I, I can imagine the answer here. Definitely working together. So my first and only storm, we went out after the hurricane hunters. So we were building to have like a little bit of break. We didn't turn over anywhere near the storm, but they communicate so well. So the forecaster, our flight director, who's a meteorologist was just like, Hey, this is what they saw. This is like what we're expecting. And we're going to use all of their information to help us predict what we're doing. And then we're going to make sure that we pass it on to the next crew that they have coming out in case like it's strengthened or it's changed track so that everybody can Mm. grab that information and fly effectively. (laughs) There's an air disasters on YouTube where they talk about Hurricane Hugo, where the NOAA P3 gets like stuck in the storm. It seems very dramatic. Of course. The show. But they talk about the hurricane, the uh, Air Force C-130, like joining up on the P3 and like guiding it out of the hurricane. And I thought that was ridiculous. And then I talked to one of the other P3 pilots. It's like, yeah, we see them in the eye all the time. I was like, do you join out? They're like, oh yeah, absolutely. Blue Angel form for sure. <laughs> but yeah, sometimes they'll fly, they'll be in the eye at the same time. Just, you know, obviously different altitudes, but 
Uh, and they had talked about, you know, dropping a buoy through a windshield, which I hope never happens, but, or drops on, excuse me, it's not a buoy. Okay. So yeah, I, I would tell you that there's a rivalry. Sometimes I don't even know if I should be sharing this. So you might have to take this out, <laughs> but sometimes there's a little bit of friendly rivalry between the Gulf Stream and the P3. You know, they're technically hurricane hunters, but they go over the hurricane. They don't go through the eye wall. Uh, of course. But that's, of course, a friendly rivalry. And they're both <laughs> the aircraft are equally as cool. But I'm yeah. P3. But in the end, everybody's sharing information and collaborating. And so it's a win for the whole team. It's for science. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. That Yeah, that's a great answer for almost <laughs> anything, by the way. Uh, okay. Nice. Well, I mean, it's good because, you know, sometimes when I allow myself to get ruffled about the various things we squander taxpayer dollars on, it's good to know that we do spend money on the men and the women and the equipment and NOAA and the 53rd Weather Reconnaissance Squadron to go out there and investigate and learn about these things. And as Mark and Garrett said, it really makes a difference because you don't want to cry wolf and you don't want people sticking around when they should evacuate, but you don't want to spend, what did he say, a million dollars a mile to evacuate? some shoreline on the Gulf Coast, let's say. And so I think it's great that we have these units and you're a part of that. And that's really cool. I feel really fortunate to be part of the team and, you know, all the work that all the squadrons, the scientists and the universities to help make this nation like a weather ready nation and more prepared, I think is always a good focus for taxpayer dollars. Yeah. So we'll hope that that continues. Well, and unfortunately, these are the kinds of things that you don't hear about on social media and news because it's not as exciting as protests and everything else that's going on. But it's good to know there are still folks out there doing this. And uh, I'm glad we were able to feature it today. And I'm glad you were able to help out, Recky, as well. With that, we can start transitioning to the end of the show here. We want to thank our newest Patreon supporters, which include Strike Leads, Robert Jones, Joe Tengleo, Michael Lewis, and we have a new mission commander, Todd Fong. The views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the hosts and our guests and do not necessarily represent the position of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. I put that in just for you, Recky, or the Department of Defense or its components. So, Recky, before we send you off, you said that people tease you or whatever about uh, being on the show, but I just want to thank you because one of the perks we give those Patreon supporters we just talked about is the ability to do a 30-minute debrief with someone every month at the higher levels, and I think you've even done one of those uh, or two maybe for us, haven't you? Yeah, I've had the opportunity to talk to quite a few of your listeners, some of them who are aspiring test pilots, which is a really cool mentorship opportunity for me. And others who have very technical questions, which definitely yeah. pushes me to stay in the books. So your <laughs> listeners have been has been awesome. And I always love hearing from somebody who is a patron and listener to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Well, you even helped us answer a question last week with Boat about what happens to these buoys or drop songs, I guess, when they go into the water. So thanks for that. Now, I wanted to ask you, because one thing we did for you was connect you with Scott Tingle, who was our fighter pilots in space guest. And at one point, if I remember correctly, you were looking into the astronaut program. What's going on with that, if anything? Scott Tingle's so awesome. He was so great. Thank you. He's oh, good. president. He was really like I, when I was kind of going back and forth for the decision on, you know, NOAA or Navy or, you know, I was looking at some doctoral programs. He was just like a really good mentor. And you have been too. You provided a lot of insight on, you know, what Aww. service looks like. Yeah. So this, we are in the midst of an astronaut board right now. 
a couple of people who I went to TPS with, their references have been called. Mine haven't, but I'm not deterred. I think anybody who's been part of anything or is working towards something knows that, especially coming from a military background, things take perseverance and they take time. So this may not be my board, but I know that perseverance is important and just staying with it. So to anybody out there who's working towards uh, space, a couple of your listeners have reached out to me because they are also aspiring astronauts or anything in your life that you're working through that may seem challenging or the goal may seem far away, just, just stick with it. That's part of what we learn in military aviation and we kind of learn throughout life. So I don't know that you'll be seeing my name uh, next summer, but don't be deterred because I'm going to keep going for it. So that's my update. Good for you, Recky. I'm proud of you and excited for you. And if you played kids sports like I did, you might remember the coach saying attitude and effort. I mean, if you just have those two things, you can do well at almost anything. And of course, some persistence and determination are part of that. But you're so right. And we get a lot of young folks on the show that, oh, what if I don't get accepted to flight school? Or what if I don't get jets? Or what if I this or that? And if it's important enough to you, you got to stick to it. And I'm so excited. I hope this does work out for you. And they take the best. And I hope you continue to make yourself one of the best so that ultimately they can see the value of having you part of the program. And we'll see you uh, blasting off someday. Thanks, Jello. And thanks to your listeners. All right, Recky. Well, with that, we want to thank you for stopping by and lending your expertise on hurricane hunting. And we're going to keep you in our Rolodex for future questions and guests and all the other stuff, if that's all right with you. That sounds great. I'm looking forward to hearing from y'all. Awesome. And for everyone else, we'll see you back here next week to discuss the carrier plane, which was made famous in the Vietnam conflict for flying rescue missions with a call sign named for the group commander's dog. (laughs) You won't want to miss that one. We'll see you. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, check out our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the show, and don't forget to share us with your network. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.